All right. If everyone will be opening your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. Uh, last week we did a little bit of an overview of the, uh, of the book uh, to get us started. And so today we're going to begin to uh, exegete the, uh, the book itself. Uh, I would also ask that you open, or not open your Bibles, but uh, if you have the ability, if you have, it's like Hiram said, if you have, a, if you have it on a phone, you've got to work that out on your own. I'm not sure how you'd do that, but if you've got a paper Bible, uh, go ahead and open your Bibles also to Acts 17. And just put your thumb in there or put your finger in there, and we're going to be flipping back and forth. In fact, we're going to start in Acts 17. And why are we starting in Acts 17? We talked about it last week. Right, so Acts is the history book of the church. Every church that is written to, First Corinthians, uh, the church at Corinth, the church at Ephesus, the church at Galatia, the church, at, uh, church in Rome, all of these churches have their beginning, their inception in the book of Acts. So since Acts is a history book of the church, along with what we said also, Acts is how to become a Christian, because there are also in those, church, in those chapters, uh, in, in those uh, in, in, those, uh, in those examples of, of different churches, uh, what we also see is we see um, how, you become, how you become a Christian in Acts of, uh, of Faith and the plan of salvation at work. And so if we go to Acts 17, then we're going to talk about the establishment of the church at Thessalonica. And so if you come into 1 Thessalonians and you don't know how the church was established and you don't know what happened before that and you don't know what happened after that, there's a big, there's a big gap in your understanding. And so, really, you could go back to Acts 16, because Acts 16 is, is what happened in Acts 16. If you go back there real quick, if you go back to Acts 16, what happened down in church in, uh, in verses 6 through 10 of Acts 16? What do we call that? Right, it's a Macedonian call. So, he had a vision, and those people said what? Don't you come over here. Don't you come over here and preach that word to us. What did they say? What they say in verse 9? What did they say in verse 9 in chapter 16? They said, come over and help us. Come on over and help us. Please come over and help us. So this is the Macedonian call. Thessalonica is in, Macedon- is in Macedonia. It's part of the Macedon Empire. It's part of the Roman Empire. It's a port city. So it's kind of the center. Thessalonica is kind of the center for this whole region. And so when Paul goes to Thessalonica, now go over to chapter 17. In chapter 17 of Acts, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Well, now, now we know why they're there. We know the why of why they're there. They're in Thessalonica to establish a church. There's a synagogue of the Jews. Paul, as his custom was, went in there for three Sabbaths. So he was there for, for three weeks. Three Saturdays he was there, and he was preaching in the, in the synagogue, reasoning with them from the scriptures. And as he reasoned with them from the scriptures, verse 4 says, and some of them were persuaded. Now we can reason from that that they were persuaded. They became, uh, they became baptized or immersed believers. They became the corpus or, the, or the, the group that formed the corpus of the church at Thessalonica. They were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So there is the establishment of the church at Thessalonica. There it is. So Acts 17 gives us the introduction as it were to the work that Paul and Silas began 
at Thessalonica. Okay? Now, we go further than that, and we read down the next chapter, or we read down the next the couple of verses, and we see verse 5 says, well, the Jews were not persuaded. This had happened before. If you go back to Acts 16 and then back to Acts 15, you'll see that there's the Philippian jailer where Paul and Silas were both beaten and they were thrown into jail. What was the problem with Paul and Silas being beaten? They were Roman. Paul and Silas were both Roman citizens. Now, Silas was a he was a Hellenistic. He was a Hellenistic Jew, but he was a Roman citizen. And I'll give you the scriptures that as we start into this and look a little bit more at Silas, or what he's called in, in Thessalonians, Silvanius. Okay, so Silvanius is Silas. In Acts, he's Silas. In this book, he's, he's Silvanius. So they were beaten, and they were Roman citizens, and that was a big no-no. Roman citizens did not get beaten. They got beaten and thrown in jail in Philippi, if you remember that. And he's going to reference that in Thessalonians when he talks to them uh, about persecution. So he was beaten, thrown into jail. They left Philippi and then went to these other places and came to Thessalonica. From Thessalonica, where did they go? Because they're run out of town again. They're run out of town uh, in Thessalonica. They're run out. And so where do they go from here? They go to Berea. And they reasoned with the Bereans. And the Bereans were more accepting of the gospel. They were more accepting of this. And they studied the scriptures daily. They didn't just study the scriptures on Sunday morning. They studied the scriptures daily to see if those things that, they were, that were being preached were true. But in Acts 17.5, the Jews were not persuaded in Thessalonica. They became envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering, gathered a mob. And they set all the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason, who apparently was one of these people that was converted, one of the Greeks or one of the others that were there of the Gentile race. Uh, or the group of Gentiles, they attacked his house and sought to bring him out to the people. So they dragged Jason and some of the rulers, or some of the other brethren to the rulers, uh, and they made the famous statement, these who have turned the world upside down have come here now too. And so Jason, who had harbored them, Acts 17, verse 7, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, this one Jesus. They troubled the crowd. They troubled the rulers of the city. And so when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And then, then we see immediately in verse, eight, in verse 10 of chapter 17 of Acts that the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So now we can go over to the 1 Thessalonians and now we can begin to look at 1 Thessalonians. because We know Paul came to town with Silas and, and Timothy. And they preached in the synagogue for three weekends, and they got, they got run out of town on a rail, and they're going to go to Berea. But now, they're in, now they've come to write, or Paul has come to write, this book of encouragement to the Thessalonian, the Thessalonian church in two, in two veins. First Thessalonians and, third, and Second Thessalonians. So remembering that the book of First Thessalonians has its roots in Acts 17... We can begin to look at this. Now, we talked about the when of this, when, when this book was written. This is the earliest book that Paul wrote. This is the earliest book. This is the very first epistle that he ever wrote. He wrote this in about AD 50, 51, somewhere in there. It's the earliest epistle that he wrote. So we begin, at, uh, we begin 
in 1 Thessalonians, Paul and Silas and Timothy. And now your book, your, your, your version of the Bible may, may say Sylvanius. Now, the Bible that I'm reading from, the, the New Testament that I'm reading from, is a translation of the New Testament that is faithful to the Greek translation. And so some of the, some of the things that you will hear here may, may make, some of the terms may be different. Okay, but when those terms are different, we need to talk through those, especially when it comes to terms like uh, election or being chosen, uh, things like that. So Paul and Silas and Timothy to the congregation in Thessalonica in God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. What is the first thing that you notice about this verse with regard to other epistles that Paul has written? Look particularly at First and Second Corinthians, and look at the uh, look at um, uh, the church at uh, oh, where was it? Especially First and Second Corinthians. Someone turn to First Corinthians chapter one, verse one. He does not mention he's an apostle. This is so early. This is so early in his ministry. He doesn't mention this for a couple of reasons. Because it's very early in the ministry and he knows this church so well, he does not need to acknowledge the fact that he's an apostle. They know that. When he mentions this in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and in several others of his, other of his epistles, notice he only mentions that he's an apostle to establish authority for churches that have real problems. That's very important to note because if you look at the book of Philippians, that book is considered, and that, that letter to the Philippian church is considered a, a treatise on the joy of Christianity. And he does not say anything about that in there. So where, where the church has real problems, Paul establishes his authority. Now, are Sylvanius and Timothy, are they apostles? No, they're not apostles. Paul is the apostle. He is the one that was given the apostleship on the, on the road to Damascus when the Lord appeared to him. And so what we see is we see that Paul and Silas and Timothy, these are the three people that work to establish this church. These are the three people that are best known. In Acts 17, it's Paul and Silas. Timothy comes later, but he's here at the beginning, and then when they go away, he comes back, and we'll see what, what happens when he comes back in chapter 3. So Paul and Silas and Timothy to the congregation in Thessalonica. Now look at the accolade that they give that, that Paul gives to this church. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, that is a level, that is a level, he's establishing a level of fellowship with that congregation that you'd hardly see in any other in any other churches in the first century. It's not only in God the Father. But he also throws in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's, telling, he's telling this church, well done. The things that you have done have been, have been good. I know that the commendation that I'm giving you is one of highest regard. Grace and to you and peace. So as we look at Paul, as we look at Silas or Sylvanius, we know that these three have a long history or have history in the New Testament uh, with Paul and with preaching the gospel in a variety of ways. Um, you know, we see Paul uh, here in chapter 1, verse 1. He mentioned, he's mentioned again uh, in chapter 2, verse 18. And so all of, these, all of these gentlemen that are discussed have this history in the New Testament. We see Silas as far back as Acts 15. 
Uh, we see him mentioned again in Acts 16. Timothy uh, is mentioned in both Acts 16 and, and 18. So what he starts out with is he starts out with an established commendation to this church. He says in verse 2, we thank God always for every one of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Now, is that something we do today? Is that something we should do as a congregation? We had the, we, we had the tornadoes in December. There were churches that were actively praying for us. There were people that were calling us and saying, you know, come over, we'll come over and help you. The floods in eastern, in eastern Kentucky just a few weeks ago, a, few, a month or so ago. We told those congregations not only monetarily, but in some cases we sent, we sent stuff over there just like they did for us. And we kept them in our prayers. We are to always be praying for other congregations. We're always to make mention of others at other congregations who are struggling. We're always to keep those people in our prayers. That hasn't changed since the first century. We remember your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ before God, before our God and our Father. So he mentions three things there. What does he mention? 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now abide these three. And love. Faith, hope, and charity. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Right? So he mentions the three things. He mentions their faith. What is faith? It's the evidence of things not seen, the substance of things hoped for. Right? That's what the Hebrew writer tells us. So what is faith? It's the evidence of things not seen. The evidence of things not seen. I can't see electricity. I felt it on more than one or two occasions in my life when I've done something stupid. I felt electricity, but I've never seen it. No one has ever seen God. Now, we've seen representations of him. We've seen anthropomorphized representations of God, but none of us have ever seen God. Yet we can stand here this morning and we can confess to you that we believe that there is a God based on our faith. The evidence of things not seen. The substance of things, what? Hoped for. And that's one of the elements. Faith, hope, and love. Why do we have hope? Why do we have hope? He gave us that hope. He established that hope in us. He said... He said, if, if you believe in me, he said, I'm going to go away. And if I go away, I'm going to do what? I'm going to come again. And this is one of the issues that the Thessalonian church is wrestling with. This is an issue that a lot of people today are wrestling with. Well, I believe in God. I have faith that he is, he is the Father and that he sent his Son. I, have, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe all these things. But I don't know when he's going to come back. Why doesn't he come back? And so we as Christians have something that the world does not have. And we have hope. We also have a promise. And that, you know, that through faith, you know, none of that is none of that is intrinsically all on its own. It's all tied, it's all linked inexorably together. Our faith is linked together with our hope. And our hope is encapsulated in what? It's encapsulated in love. 
We're to do everything that we do in the name of Jesus Christ. We're to do everything we do as Christians in love. And that's hard to do as Christians. It's hard to do things in love. But it's something that we must do. So he remembers their work of faith. He remembers that this is a faithful congregation that he has established. He remembers their labor of love. He remembers what they've gone through. He remembered, as you'll see in the latter portions of this chapter, what they're still going through. They're still being persecuted. He was persecuted there. He was run out of town. Had to leave at night. And they're still being persecuted for their faith. They're still being persecuted because of their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father. We know, brothers, beloved of God, verse 4, we know, brothers, beloved of God, that you are a chosen people. Now, what does your version say instead of chosen? What does it say? Your election. Now, has that raised has that raised some problems in the denominational world? Election. Calvinism. Calvinism believes that before time began as we know it, God elected that you were going to be saved. Or God elected that you were not going to be saved. And you have nothing to do about it. You have nothing to do with this. It's called unconditional election. God has already determined who's going to be saved. God has already determined who's not going to be saved. You have no dog in the hunt. You can live the best life that you could live. You can be the best Christian that you're going to be that with, with an example of faith, hope, and love every day in your life. And if you're not elected to be saved, tough cookies. Too bad. Too bad. That's right. And they misread the book of Revelation. They say there's only 144,000 that are going to be saved. That's a very narrow road. It does, it does away with a lot of things. It's not, it's no, not only non-biblical, it's abiblical as are all the other tenets of, uh, of Calvinism. And so we could, do a whole, we could do a whole series on Calvinism and talk about TULIP, which is, the, which is the anacronym that you use for talking about Calvinism. Total depravity, unconditional election, T-U-L-I-P. You've, you've got all those, all those things. I'm not going to worry you about If you want to know about Calvinism, I can show you, I can, we can show you some things in the Bible. It goes right down to the very version of the Bible that you use, quite frankly. Every time I pick up a Bible, if I'm going to use that version, whether to teach someone else or to do a Bible study with someone, I'm going to make sure that that version says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not, should not perish. If your Bible says shall not perish, there's a difference between shall not and should not. I can tell my kid... You shall not do this. Or I can tell my kid, you shouldn't do this. If it says, if it says, if it says shall not, you need, to, you need to reconsider that version. There are, other, there are other verses in the Bible that say other things that are Calvinistic in their approach. The nearly inspired version, the NIV, says shall not. That's unconditional election. And that's Calvinism. And I can give I could give you I can give you other scriptures that are the, that are the same way that they save that same bent. So you have to be you have to be very careful. You have to be very careful with the version that you choose to use. Okay. 
And we can, you know, we can talk about that further uh, at another point in time. So you are chosen people. So what does it mean? If it's not unconditional election, what does it mean? If you're part of the elect. That's exactly correct. You are elect because you have elected to follow Jesus. There are many outside these doors today who have not elected to follow him. They couldn't care less. They have not elected to follow Jesus. They're not part of In the Old Testament, who were the chosen people? Because this version says, this is, this is straight out of the Greek. It says that you are a chosen people. What does that harken back to? Who were the chosen people in the Old Testament? The Hebrews, the Jews. They were the chosen people. What did they do? They rejected Christ. The Jews reject Christ to this very day. Well, they say he's a great guy, a good teacher, but he's not the Messiah. Messiah hasn't come yet. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a, but that's a different story for a different day. So, if we're chosen, we're chosen because we've elected. You have, what's the song? I have decided to follow Jesus. I'm part of the elect because I have elected to follow Christ's commands. I have elected to repent, to confess, to be immersed for the remission of my sins. To take on the figure of Christ, as he talks about here in a minute. And so, if you are part of that elect, you're part of that chosen, that's what Paul's talking about here. He says, you're a chosen people. You have chosen to follow Jesus, just as we choose, or do not choose, to follow Jesus. So, verse 5. Our gospel did not come to you in speech only. Our gospel did not come to you in speech only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. So what is he talking about here? He's talking about the gospel did not come to you in speech only. There were no doubt during his time in Thessalonica that he had the opportunity, as he's done before, to to do miracles because he was an apostle. He could do miracles. And so could the other apostles. It's more than mere words. That's exactly correct. And he's going to go on to talk to them about the fact that the gospel is in every one of us to live the gospel tenets on a daily basis. It's not just words. We can read the words and we can go home and put the book on the shelf and we don't pull it down until next Sunday again or Wednesday night. But that means we're not living according to that book. It's more than just it's more than just words. Our gospel did not come to you in speech only, but in power, the miracles that were done, and in the Holy Spirit, who is the guiding force in all of these things, and in much assurance, you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. We you we know they they knew how Paul acted when he was there. His life reflected the gospel that he was bringing to them. His life reflected what he was teaching. He didn't say one thing to them and then act another way. Sound familiar? It's what we're supposed to do. It's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be the embodiment of the gospel. We're supposed to live like who? Supposed to live like Christ. Mission impossible? Mission very difficult. So we can't even begin to touch the hem of the garment to live like Christ, to think like Christ, to do like Christ. But we can die like Christ, can we not? We die to our sins. 
were immersed in water, much as he was buried, to rise in what? Newness of life. So we can be like Christ. It's not easy. I fail on a daily basis. And I'm sure you struggle also. So you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. People need to know what kind of people we are. We're supposed to be different, right? We're supposed to not be like the world. We're supposed to separate ourselves from the world. And that doesn't mean not talk to the world, not do anything with the world, but it means to separate ourselves and be that chosen people. So he talked about a chosen people, that elect. We're supposed to act like we're elect. And that's not a snobby acting like we're elect. We're supposed to not be like the world. We're not supposed to act like the world. We're supposed to act differently. That's right. Well, maybe, maybe today or maybe later. Right? So what does that mean? We don't, we don't, we don't participate. We don't participate in the things that the world participates in. And to die is, you know, and he had a problem with that in, 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 at the church at Philippi. He said, you know, what did he want to do? He wanted to die. He wanted to, he wanted to die and be with the Lord. That, that's what all of us want to do. I mean, I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to die, die. I mean, I, I, you know, I have a good life. I mean, I, you know, a good church family that I'm, that I'm associated with. I, I don't really, I don't understand Paul, you know, how Paul wants to die. But, but he, he, then he said, for me to live is Christ. Okay, well, that's, that's okay too. It's okay to live for Christ. It's okay to, to try to be like Christ. I'm going to fall short, short of the mark. You're going to fall short of the mark. There's no, there's no debate there. But it's the attempt it's the acting like one thing when you're here and acting like someone else when you're out in the world. And the, and the comment about being in the world but not of the world. Does, do the people that you come in contact with every day, do they know that you're a Christian? Do you have to tell them you're a Christian or by your life and the way you act and the way you talk and the way you treat other people, does, does that demonstrate that you act like Christ. That's what they're talking about. And so this church obviously does. There's, there's commendation in this. And he's going to continue through this book to commend this church on the things that they do. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the message with much suffering. You became imitators of us. Paul said he was, he wanted, he was an imitator of who? Christ. He was an imitator of Christ. We're supposed to be imitators of Christ. That's what the whole dialogue this morning has been about, being imitators of Christ, having received the message with much what? With much suffering. Right? But does that, does that, does that involve suffering? It, it certainly did for Paul. Yeah, that's what he's saying. Yeah. Right. And what did it, and, and many Christians in the first century, what did it cost them? It cost them their lives. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Imagine what the church in the first century went through. Imagine the persecution. We read today in, in, in our time of churches in other parts of the world being persecuted. Churches in China. 
Churches in other parts of the world where the doors are broken down and the people are carted away, arrested, and put in jail. We can't imagine that happening here. We have a very cloistered, within these walls, we have a very cloistered Christianity. We worship in ease. We complain if it's too cold in the church. We complain if it's too hot in the church. Wah! There are people in the first century that were dying for Christ. And we, we, you can't, you cannot, unless you've endured it yourself, you cannot even manage what it's like to be persecuted. I've always said that. Nobody believes me. Yeah. 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 The church in South America that I worshipped at when I lived down there, it was just a, just a, a cinder block building with no roof. It, it's too expensive. Cost of living down there is such that all they could afford was to put some walls up. You don't know what it's like to be persecuted. You really do not. You think you think it's uncomfortable if it's either too hot or too cold in the building. You think that's persecution. I, I doubt if any of us have ever spent a night. I know I haven't. I doubt if any of us have ever spent a night in jail because of our faith. But you better think on these things because the times are changing. And there may come a day when you're going to have to you're going to have to say yay or nay to Christ. And God forbid if you deny him, because he's promised to deny you. But here's a church that's suffering affliction. And we talk about the various, we talk about the various types of affliction that they, were, that they were suffering. And you think back about you think back about the Christians in the first century. These were Christians that were dipped in wax, in hot wax, and put up as, as, as torches to light the Appian Way for Nero. These are Christians who were forced to fight each other to the death. These were Christians who were forced to fight animals to the death. Their death, usually not the animal. The book of Revelation is written to those Christians. How to die as a Christian. If you, if you overcome this life and its persecution, you can come over. That's what the book's about. And hopefully... After a couple of classes, maybe I'll get the chance to teach Revelation. I already told Neil that you know, I've taught that class two or three times here since we've since Christy and I have been here. Um, but it's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book. And some people say, why, why would God write all these books and then at the end drop a giant mystery on us? There's no mystery. But to understand Revelation, you have to be a good Old Testament student. And we're not good Old Testament students. So... Verse 7, you became an example to all those who believe in Macedonia and in Achaia. You know, that's quite a compliment. The church at Lehman Avenue is an example to all of the other churches in Warren County. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying here. Thessalonica, in the area of Macedonia, was a central, was a central area for commerce for the Roman Empire. Roads leading to the west led to Rome. Roads leading to the east led out to the Silk Roads, uh, other areas. This was a central area. And for this church to be as well known as it was to elicit this comment from Paul in the very opening chapters of, the, uh, of this book, the message of the Lord has sounded out from you, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but in every place your faithfulness toward God has gone out. We have no need to say anything. What does that mean? We have no need to say anything. He doesn't have any need to brag on them. 
speaks for itself. Paul doesn't have to add anything. When the church is faithful, when the church is a recognized, uh, recognized congregation in the center of this, this mecca of, of, of transport and travel in this port city of, of Thessalonica, which, by the way, is still a port city today. It's called Slonica today. It's not Thessalonica anymore. It's called Slonica. But for this church to be lauded by Paul in such a way, that's quite a commendation. It's quite a commendation for a church. We would do well if, if that was said of Lehman Avenue. We would do well if that was said of any local church of Christ that had such faithfulness as they had. We have no need to say anything. We don't. Your, your, your congregation speaks for itself. I don't, have, I don't have anything to add. I have nothing else for you. They themselves are reporting what kind of reputation we had among you. So when Paul came and he preached and was run out of town, there are those who are reporting, there, there are those who have reported back what kind of reputation we had among you, that you turned to God from idols. So that phrase right there tells me that the majority of the Christians here were what? Are they Jews? Gentiles. They're probably Gentiles. Gentiles were the ones who left idol worship and turned to Christ. The Jews, a little harder to convince, many weren't convinced, and they were the ones that stirred up problems and caused trouble. They themselves are reporting what kind of reputation we had among you, that you turned to God from idols to, to serve the true and living God. And that you wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the coming wrath. Look at the last, look at the last couple verses there about Jesus. This is one of the things that he's going to talk more about because this is one of the problems that the church at Thessalonica had. And that you wait, verse 10, and that you wait for his son. They're waiting for Christ to come back. They don't know when. He tells them the what, the where, the how, but he never knows because no one knows except the Father. Not even the angels in heaven, nor, not even the Son knows the day in when the, which the Lord will return. But they're waiting. He says, we wait. We wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That's the historicity of Jesus. There is a historical Jesus. There is a historical Jesus who was, who was documented to have lived. He's documented to have died. He's documented to have been resurrected from the dead. He is documented to have been raised back or ascended back to the Father. And it is documented that he will come again. We wait. We wait for Jesus. Why do we wait for Jesus? Who delivers us from the coming wrath. So we're waiting for Jesus to come back. To be saved from the wrath that is to come. And we can only be saved through the Christ. So in chapter 2 then, he starts again to talk about people who have criticized him. He's going to talk a little bit about those who criticized him and forced him to have to leave to go out to Berea. And so he begins that and we'll talk about chapter 2. Uh, next time as we as we move through the book of uh, First Thessalonians. So I've, we've got just a few minutes. Questions, comments? Anything? Anybody? Going once, going twice. Oh, the second bell will be coming here in, in just a second. So I'll get you out. You're late to class. You need to stand on the stand up and sing. You already rang? Well, I'm notorious for keeping you too long. I'm sorry.
I'm sorry. I, I'm somehow deaf to the second bell. I don't know what that is. It may just be a, may just be a predilection of mine. 